And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Hey, greetings from the near frontier. Thanks for tuning in. It's another special edition of 40 Acres and a Fool, another past tense current events edition. Uh, This time around, taking a look at the Green New Deal and A New Deal, which was a 1932 book by Stuart Chase. Uh, Probably the inspiration for Franklin Roosevelt using and coming up with the phrase, the New Deal. I figure with the Green New Deal in the news, it's a good time to go back and actually look at the promises, false in many cases, uh, of the New Deal. Um, so let's talk about the Green New Deal for a second, right? The, so the Green New Deal is predicated on the idea that we only have a limited amount of time to save the world from climate change. And in order to do that, it's going to require a drastic uh, rethinking and reconfiguring of American society and American government, right? But we have to do it now. There is an urgent need for this. This is from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, February 16th. On Twitter, you say you love your children, but you are destroying our future. Our sea levels are rising. Droughts are worsening. Wildfires are spreading. Storms are coming. There is precious little time left. We must mobilize our economy around a Green New Deal before it is too late. And then there's this. Natural resources are being ruthlessly and wastefully exploited under the compulsion of technological progress. Closing one's eyes, one sees a gigantic hopper engulfing virgin forests, rich soils, coal seams, pools of petroleum, nitrate and phosphate beds, mineral deposits, even the fish of the seas, to spew out after prodigious labor, billboards, tabloids, cigar lighters, Miniature golf courses, jerry-built apartment houses, confession magazines, Coney Island, saxophones, half-rented skyscrapers, subways, squeaking radios, paper boots, filling stations, brown derbies, outboard motors. Go open your eyes and look as you drive at the rusting skeletons of motor cars befouling untold miles of American country roads. Now that second quote wasn't about the Green New Deal. That second quote was about the New Deal in 1932, and it comes from Stuart Chase's book, A New Deal. He went on to say, uh, directly after that paragraph, bemoaning capitalism, he said, quote, progress, my eye. In other words, all of these things that I just talked about, the subways, the radios, the uh, the cars, the, uh, the the miniature golf courses, which, by the way, were a thing uh, in the early 1930s, that was sort of a, a fad. He says, uh, the system called capitalism may need progress to keep going, but we don't need it. Yeah, we don't need progress. Imagine that. A progressive saying we don't need progress. We'll get back to that. There's a little bit of foreshadowing here. He said, the system called capitalism may need progress to keep going, but we do not need it. It would be a jolly good thing to declare a moratorium on inventions for at least a decade and treat all inventors as dangerous lunatics with proper care and supervision. The quarrel is not with technological improvements as such, but with the rate of introduction. One of the best hopes for securing some real progress in the future is to bottle up technological progress and feed it out with a measuring cup. So both the Green New Deal today and the hypothetical New Deal of of Stuart Chase's book in 1932 Both of them, again, rely on this heavy-handed management of the American economy, supposedly for our own good, right? And in both cases, individual agency is going to have to be replaced by collective action and even collective thought uh, for the benefit of all mankind, which I got to say, I think that's kind of hooey. So let's go back to 1932. Obviously, if the uh, if climate change is the emergency that that is supposed to compel us to adopt a Green New Deal today, uh, the emergency in the 1930s was economic, right? It was an economic disaster. Uh, by 1932, you were uh, entering your third year, basically, of the Great Depression, right? October of 1929, that's when the stock market crash happened. So uh, 1932 is not just... You know, another year of continuing misery where unemployment is near 25%. You've got uh, real 
a real frame of the social fabric. This is something we don't really think about when we think about you know the Great Depression. Maybe we think about uh, Okies, uh, you know, heading out from Dust Bowl, Oklahoma, driving in their uh, jalopies to to California for a new life. We think of people selling apples on the streets, right? We think of bread lines. We 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 know that there was poverty. We know that 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 it was a struggle. But we also, I think, have this sense of, well, Americans really came together, right? And they, they, they really united. And that isn't really the case. It really isn't. I mean, you had, you know, massive strikes. You had uh, something called the Farmer's Holiday, which took place across the Midwest, where farmers who were uh, just devastated, you know, the, 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 the crop prices uh, had never really recovered from the uh, uh, 1920s. And then they just, you know, cratered in the early 1930s. And so you had farmers actually uh, burning their crops rather than taking them to market. You had uh, farmers that were blocking roads so that other farmers couldn't take their crops to market, all in an attempt to drive up prices. Americans were, in many ways, um, at each other's throat, uh, particularly in terms of the, the class warfare, the class divisions. And this was exacerbated by the fact that in, in the Soviet Union, there was supposedly this great, glorious experiment that was taking place, right? And in, in, in just a uh, less than twenty years before, you had had the uh, uh, the October Revolution, uh, and after a you know brief flirtation with uh, quote unquote pure communism, uh, Lenin had then adopted in the early nineteen twenties the New Economic Plan, these five year plans. Uh, the Soviet Union was constantly touting their. Uh, industrial achievements and and the progress that they were making and how much better life was in the Soviet Union than it was in the United States or in Europe because communism was supposedly the wave of the future. Socialism was the wave of the future. Capitalism was on its way out in the 1930s. That was the prevailing wisdom, at least among the intelligentsia, right? Um, and so 1932 was an election year. Uh, and uh, 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 Hubert Herver, let me try that again. Herbert Hoover, uh, who was president when the Great Depression struck, uh, up against Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and you know Roosevelt had the uh, he had a couple of things going for him. One, he didn't have the baggage of being president when the Great Depression started, uh, but two, he could offer up those sort of vague, vacuous statements about uh, needing a new deal and what that would mean for the American people, uh, contrasting uh, his fresh face and his face I- fresh ideas with those of Hoover, who, you know, look, it had already tried his way. So now you've got another option here. And basically, you know, two-party system, you've got one other option. You want to try something new, I'm offering you a new deal. Roosevelt first used that phrase uh, when he accepted the nomination of the uh, Democratic Party in 1932. His uh, campaign acceptance speech featured the, uh, the, the following quote, Throughout the nation, men and women, forgotten in the political philosophy of the government, look to us here for guidance and for more equitable opportunity to share in the distribution of national wealth. I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. This is more than a political campaign. It is a call to arms. So a call to arms. Who, who were they taking arms up against? Uh, and the answer was the wealthy. J- just like today, and the Green New Deal is all about a massive redistribution of wealth. Uh, in this case, and, and I should not just say just about a massive redistribution of wealth. That is certainly a part of it. It is also a realignment of the relationship between the individual and the state. And in order to achieve that redistribution of wealth, you have to have that realignment, right? Because the wealthy uh, cannot maintain possession of their own wealth. And, uh, and so there is this trickle-down effect. Even if these policies are meant on paper or in theory to uh, you know, take from the rich and to give to the poor and to establish a more uh, equitable situation in the United States, in order for that to transpire, our relationship every individual's relationship to the state is going to have to change. And every one of us is going to have to become more subservient as an individual uh, to the collective will uh, embodied by the state. And again, this is apparent today in the Green New Deal, right? You've got to give up your car. You're probably going to have to uh, give up eating meat. All of these things that you might want to continue to do, we're not going to allow you to do them. 
because we feel like you can't do these things if we're going to save the planet. Well, the argument uh, for collectivism uh, in uh, the, the 1930s was, uh, you know, look, the, the, in fact, let, me, let me quote to you from uh, A New Deal by Stuart Chase. And I want to talk a little bit about who Stuart Chase was as well. But uh, So this book that, that he writes, A New Deal, comes out in 1932. Stuart Chase is an economist. He's a guy that is one of the pioneers of sort of consumer research um, and actually would go on to start a company called, a nonprofit company called Consumer Research. He was an advisor to Franklin Roosevelt. And this was not his first book. He had come out with a book a couple of years ago attacking, basically attacking the advertising industry uh, and accusing American society of just being full of all of these, you know, worthless gadgets. Our economy wasn't functioning as smoothly as it could be because we're just wasting so much money on these fripperies and frivolous things. So that that was his mindset, right? And by 1932, again, with the economy uh, cratering as it was and, you know, no real uh, end in sight, it seemed, to the miseries that so many millions of Americans were experiencing at the time, Chase looked to Russia and looked to the Soviet Union and, and saw a promised land. Now, he was smart enough to recognize that 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 the United States wasn't going to have a Bolshevik revolution. We weren't going to turn into the Soviet Union overnight. But what he tried to do in a new deal was to take the, the values uh, and the philosophies that he felt were being put in place in the Soviet Union at the time and to try to translate those uh, into American as we'll see, he had a very imperfect picture of what was going on in the Soviet Union at the time, as did a lot of other Americans. But um, I, I, I won't absolve him completely, because even by 1932, there were those who had fled the Soviet Union who were talking about, who were, who were telling anybody who would listen uh, about the, uh, the dangers that uh, individuals faced there in Stalin's Russia. But again, uh, from the first pages of Stuart Chase's book, A New Deal, his antipathy uh, towards individualism is apparent. Uh, He writes, this is on the fifth page of the book, out of the human need for nourishment, a mechanism has been established, simple among handicraft peoples, exceedingly complicated among peoples of the machine age. In a broad outline, it might be compared to the human body where the cooperation of millions of cells is essential to the efficient functioning, which means health and life. When a group of cells refuses to cooperate, becomes unduly imbued with what might be called anatomical rugged individualism, we have a cancer, and in the end, death. If we're not all on the same page as a society, if we're not all rowing together, uh, then you are a cancer on, on society, and you will ultimately be the death of society. So there is, there is no room, uh, if we're trying to make the, uh, the, the patient, in this case the, uh, the U.S. economy, uh, healthy, there's no room. you got to eradicate that cancer, right? you got to chop it out. you got to excise it, chemotherapy, radiation. you got to do whatever you can to kill those cancer cells. And in this case, the cancer cells were, were rugged individuals and the idea of rugged individualism. Stuart Chase wasn't just writing about economic plans or policies that could lift the United States out of the Great Depression. He really did believe that capitalism had uh, reached its uh, conclusion and that if you, uh, even if you were to somehow um, you know, not uh, dramatically revolutionize uh, the, 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 the structure of government and the relationship of the individual to the state. Uh, and, and let's say that the economy was going to recover. He, he felt like, all right, there's probably only one more cycle. And by 1950 or so, there'd be a, a, an even worse Great Depression. Uh, and then we never really would recover from that. So, so this, again, there's a sense of urgency. This is the time to act. The time to act is now. If we're going to save our society and we're going to make it better, we have to go ahead and, and, and you know, head off in this new direction, the third road, as Stuart Chase called it, uh, which is not capitalism. It is not Soviet communism. It's not even really a blend of the two. That's the weird thing about what Stuart Chase was actually advocating. Stuart Chase was not 
it looked a lot closer to Soviet communism than it did American capitalism. But it was this strange utopian ideal of everybody working without deriving a, 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 a profit uh, for either themselves or their companies. It's just, it's a, all right, let me give you an example of this. This is uh, page 22 of A New Deal by Stuart Chase. And again, I, I, I see echoes of this in the Democratic Socialists today, in the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's of today. He says, quote, if we took all the income away from the wealthy and distributed it to the rest of the population, the standard of living for the latter would only increase by 10%. But, he says, if we could eliminate the gyrations of those who are trying to become wealthy, we could abolish poverty and double the standard of living virtually overnight. Now, this is something that doesn't get discussed. I mean, we, look, we know that the uh, Green New Deal supporters hate billionaires, right? I, I saw somebody uh, on Twitter the other day, billionaires shouldn't be allowed to exist. And my go-to response, by the way, is why do you hate Oprah? Because it's weird. I mean, they never talk about Oprah. They never talk about, let's see, Kylie Jenner is worth $900 million. She's probably going to become a billionaire this year. Uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce together are worth $1.25 billion. Never, never hear a word about, you know, those billionaires, right? It's, it's just, it's like, you know, rah, Warren Buffett and Michael Bloomberg, as I'm going to say rah, 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 Michael Bloomberg, but not because he's a billionaire, but because he's a nanny who wants to tell you and I how to live our lives from the firearms that we own to the soda that we drink. There's lots of reasons to critique billionaires, individual billionaires. I'm just not on board with critiquing the idea of a billionaire. But today's socialists certainly are okay with it. And Stuart Chase back in 1932 certainly was as well. Again, it wasn't even about just going after the existing billionaires. It was about trying to get rid of the idea of becoming rich. So if there's no way that anybody could become rich, well, gosh, what's the point of being a rugged individualist, right? What's the point of, of, of striving to build your own company if, you, if it's just going to get taken from you? If you're only allowed to make X number of dollars. If we could eliminate the gyrations of those who are trying to become wealthy, we could abolish poverty and double the standard of living virtually overnight. Again, just as the Green New Deal today is built on these utopian promises, so too was the original New Deal back in 1932, at least the one offered up uh, by Mr. Stuart Chase. He also got something really, really wrong. Like one of the basic premises that, that, that served as a foundation for his New Deal turned out to be entirely false. Uh, Stuart Chase believed that the population of the United States was uh, the population growth was slowing. He felt that by 1960, the United States population would probably peak around 150 million people. And after that, it would, it would slowly start to decline. Now, in reality, in 1960, the U.S. population was 180 million. And today, it is right around 325 million people. So... Stuart Chase got it really wrong. <laughs> he got it absolutely wrong about what was going to happen to the population of this country. And his entire economic agenda is based on the idea of basically you know, managing the decline as opposed to dealing with growth. In fact, he talks about how different things are when you have a growing economy, when you have a growing population. There's a constant need for an influx of new capital and new factories. But he didn't think we needed any of that stuff. Because our population really wasn't growing. So, so, so that meant that instead of you know, reallocating money towards new factories and new houses, uh, we could do something different. He, he wrote, uh, a roughly static population needs only provide for the depreciation of investment, making good the ravages of wear and tear. New citizens must be supplied with a whole new outfit of capital goods, but if there are no new citizens and net numbers, the outfit is irrelevant. And he thought, okay, well, if you've got this static population and then you've got this you know, completely new economic order where it's not about private profit, 
but instead is, and it's not even about private consumption or individual consumption of goods, but it's about something called community consumption. He thought, oh my gosh, this is going to open up a, a whole new world. Education, parks, playgrounds, concerts, art galleries, things which nourish the spirit uh, rather than follow the advice of the advertising fraternity. Unlimited purchasing power, he wrote, for unlimited gadgets is not going to help us much. But if we had, again, this, this you know, shift uh, in, our, in our thinking, and it wasn't just about you know, capitalism and getting ahead and, and you know, buying these latest gadgets. Think about all the amazing things that we could provide for society, all of the art galleries and museums and concerts and parks and playgrounds, all of which, by the way, we have in a capitalist society, right? Stuart Chase, uh, again, got this one really wrong, that, that somehow the arts and the, the, the high arts and the uh, you know, intellectual uh, diversions that uh, they offer uh, were somehow going to become more accessible in a top-down, state-controlled, centrally planned society than individuals choosing to support museums, art galleries, donate money for playgrounds, uh, as well as, you know, local government spending, uh, taking, you know, sales tax receipts and things of that nature to, uh, to, to make these sort of civic improvements. It's another commonality, I think, between the, uh, the New Deal of Stuart Chase and the Green New Deal today is that in many ways, these, they, they, <laughs> they hate stuff, Right, at least in theory. I mean, uh, you know, you'll you'll hear Alexandria Ocasio Cortez talk about how capitalism's on the way out, and then she's wearing, you know, name brand uh, and designer, you know, clothes. So in practice, I don't know how much they actually hate stuff, but in theory, you know, it's 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 not. It's weird. I mean, they call themselves progressives, but they're actually kind of opposed to to progress and to the material things that that progress produces. This uh, this flirtation or this admiration for Russia um, it comes through uh, not on every page of, of Stuart Chase's A New Deal, but but uh, in every chapter certainly. So there's a chapter uh, called The Roaring Twenties where he kind of you know lays out his version of the history of the past decade and how they got to where they were today. Right, and one of the things that Stuart Chase hated was laissez-faire uh, economics just felt like uh, the world had progressed beyond laissez-faire economics and that, again, a planned economy was just the, the natural uh, a way to go about things in this you know, very complicated future and the age of machines and, uh, and the Industrial Revolution. Uh, he writes, uh, after World War I, in only one nation did war collectivism advance to more complete peacetime collectivism. He wrote, uh, Russia destroyed both her ancient feudalism and her comparatively new capitalism and bloody revolution and proceeded to declare complete communism with the medium of exchange eliminated throughout the device of running her printing presses day and night. Money became so plentiful that its scarcity value disappeared and it was worth nothing. The change was too violent, Chase wrote. Production dropped to 20% of the pre-war level and threatened to grow lower. Whereupon, Lenin declared the new economic policy, permitting money, banks, interest, and a certain amount of private business and laissez-faire to return. He was wise, Chase wrote. Human psychology cannot adjust itself to new conditions at such speed. Collectivism was tempered with a little capitalism, and presently Russia began to move forward, but always to the left. Today, in 1932, he wrote, uh, she is accumulating capital and increasing her production at a phenomenal rate. Thus, poor old laissez-faire is forced to take the count again. Its professors had unequivocally asserted that capital could be accumulated and production stimulated only through the agency of the entrepreneur, the profit motive, and the free market. There is hardly an entrepreneur left in Russia. Private gain is completely in abeyance, and the market is rigidly controlled. First the war and then the five-year plan came to give the lie to the professor's theories. It's all very sad, Stuart Chase wrote. But the Russians in time of peace have answered the question of what an economic system is for. Yeah, the, what, what an economic system is for, by the way, is to uh, provide some sense of stability uh, for us as individuals and us as a society so that we can you know, continue to live our lives as best we can. Now, I would not call the Soviet Union in the, the 1930s 
uh, a, a model for anything. But Stuart Chase, much like today's lefties and socialists, was clearly enamored with the, uh, the Soviet Union. Again, keep it in mind, he, he wanted to translate those experiences to the United States. So, uh, for instance, uh, he wrote at one point, um, there's never been control from the top. Uh, and that is the only point from which the economic cycle may be steadied. Tinkering here and there has done no good and never will. If the production and distribution of goods are left to some millions of private individuals, each striving to become rich after his own fashion, working more or less in the dark, and frequently at cross-purposes with his fellows, the whole mechanism is bound to lose its balance from time to time. And the more complicated and interdependent the engineers make it with their inventions and their quote-unquote progress, the more tipsy we might expect it to become. It is, I guess... To some minds, it's not to, not to my mind, but to some minds, there is something beautiful in the idea of being able to manage and control the economy as if it was a machine itself, right? For the, for the architects of the New Deal back in the 1930s, they really thought, well, with enough government agencies and enough uh, uh, planning and enough planners... Uh, we can make society function perfectly, right? It's just a matter of the right laws in the right place, the right policies at the right time. The Green New Dealers today, well, we can uh, manage the, uh, the the energy uh, sector. We can shut down the coal plants and replace them all with uh, you know wind and solar. We can shut down the uh, car factories and we can uh, reopen them and retool them to make electric cars. We can, you know, if we just maintain control... Over uh, uh, all aspects of society, from the food that you eat to the uh, the, the fuel that you burn, uh, then we can save the planet. I mean, this isn't even about fixing the economy. This is about saving the world, right? That's amazing. But we got to give up all individual responsibility and individual rights in order to do so. And of course, you know, we the people cannot be expected uh, to actually do this. We will have to be led, right? This is not, again, this is, this is top-down planning. This is not bottom-up grassroots organizing. This is not populism, no matter the, uh, the trappings that uh, it might take. This is about top-down control, control by a few over the many. Stuart Chase makes it explicit in A New Deal. He writes, the two great inventions for saving human labor are money and the machine. Both, he says, have got out of hand and are prancing and trampling around through the social order as though they had equestrian rights from God. The job before us is to stop this nonsense and lead money and machine back into the stalls where they belong. It cannot be done by casting spells. So we will need leaders, people to lead us and to lead money and the machines, you know, back into the stalls where they belong. Uh, Stuart Chase uh, says that uh, he believes those leaders uh, will be found in the ranks of the engineers and the technicians, uh, in the ranks of industrial management, as contrasted with ownership, he said, uh, in the colleges where young men are beginning to ask plain questions as they never asked them before. These, he writes, are likely places to look for those leaders. You, my friend, he writes, may be hiding a marshal's baton under your coat at this moment, the path along which they shall lead us. The path which these new managers of society shall lead us, Stuart Chase says, can bear only to the left. No more excursions into the petrified forests of rugged individualism. No more attempts to keep government and business single and celibate. No more jogging in the middle of the road amid the placid certainties of the 19th century. No more mass movements to the good old days when the easiest thing to do with an over-mortgaged house was to leave it to the mortgage holder and take the sunset trail. Right trails and center trails are posted no thoroughfare. The left road is the only road, and willy-nilly, we must take it. The left road is the only road. And if you don't want to take it, tough, Right? You will be led down that road. Again, it is too important for there to be any dissension. The stakes are too high for you to want to go another way. 
you will be made to comply. Again, we see this in the statements of the supporters of the Green New Deal, right? You don't get to keep your uh, internal combustion engine. You, you've got to give it up. You don't get to keep eating meat when the cows are all killed. Uh, by the way, you don't have to work, apparently. Uh, you know, you, you still get uh, a, a, a house over your, uh, or a roof over your head and uh, food in your fridge and a, a quote-unquote decent standard of living, even for those unwilling to work. Somehow that happens. Uh, so so that, that's your freedom of choice, right? You can choose to work or not, and you'll still be provided for. But what you want to eat, that's not up to you. Or what you get to eat, that's not up to you. Uh, what uh, kind of sheets you have on your bed, that's not up to you. Uh, the kind of car that you drive, not up to you. The books that you read, the music that you listen to. Now, so far, they've said, oh, no, 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 it's not about that. I think that absolutely goes hand in hand with the type of control that the Green New Dealers would like to establish over American society. So Stuart Chase elaborated on this analogy of, you know, the left road is the only road we can go. Uh, And he does so sort of awkwardly. He says, to the left, there are three main routes that branch. He says, one of them we shall travel, but I do not know which. The first, he says, is the wild and stormy road of violent revolution. The second is the stern, steel-walled road of a commercial dictatorship with political democracy swept down, a gully and constitutional guarantees rolled flat. The third is the road of change within the broad outlines of the law and of the American tradition, with many a zooming curve, but safely banked. Uh, The last is the road I prefer, he writes, and I think the odds are in its favor. This reminds me of uh, Obama saying, some people say A, some people say B, I say C. Uh, Right, so you got communism, you got fascism, or you've got the third road, uh, according to Stuart Chase. Now, it's interesting that Stuart Chase views all of these things, communism, fascism, and this New Deal, as roads on the left, right? They are all branches of that same collectivist road. In the 1930s, it was apparently not as controversial to, uh, to note that uh, communism and fascism were still uh, state-controlled collectivism. As Chase writes, all three roads have the same immediate goal, balancing distribution with production. All three lead to the left in the sense that they must employ collective action. So there you go. Uh, Chase went on to say, in a way, it's a pity that the road to revolution is temporarily closed, that you have to go about things, you know, that third road, that that, that reform, even drastic reform, as opposed to a violent and bloody revolution. He says, brought to swift victory by stern disciplinarians and idealists, the resulting advantages would be very considerable, provided ideals were kept intact. He said the red dictatorship could take money, purchasing power, and the distribution of income in hand without delay and have the main sections of the problem ironed out within a relatively brief period. Yeah. So wouldn't it be nice if we could have a red dictatorship, wrote Stuart Chase, author of A New Deal, advisor to Franklin Roosevelt in 1932. Uh, following Russia's intelligent lead, he writes, there would, of course, be no dividing up, but reasonable scales of pay, depending on the worker's ability and the danger or importance of his work. Production under a centralized planning bureau would present no extra problem at all. Russia, under her five-year plan, is building both a new industrial plant and producing enough to feed her people. We have the plant, and all we have to do is to operate it at approximate capacity, thus solving out a stroke, unemployment, and inadequate standards of living. As Stuart Chase is writing this, in the Soviet Union, there are the knocks on the door in the middle of the night, and the Soviet secret police are taking people away. And sometimes without trial, sometimes with only a, uh, a, a, a farce of a trial, they are being sentenced to uh, decades in forced labor camps. Uh, this this you know, great physical plant that Stuart Chase is talking about is built on the back of slave labor in the Soviet Union. Now, I, I don't think that Stuart Chase was aware of this, but he got it so incredibly wrong. So many people on the left did get it so incredibly wrong. 
and continue to this day to get it so incredibly wrong. Nobody I know thinks that capitalism is perfect. There was a, uh, a quote by a guy named Willie Schlamm, who was one of the, uh, one of the founders of, of modern American conservatism, wrote for um, uh, National Review in the early days before uh, returning to Germany. He's a former communist uh, turned capitalist. And Willie Schlamm said that the trouble with capitalism is capitalists. The trouble with socialism is socialism. Capitalism isn't perfect, right? And there are going to be uh, inequalities. There are going to be people that take advantage of the system and take advantage of other people. That happens under socialism, too. But under socialism, you get all of the same foibles of human nature combined uh, with the oppressive power of the state and the removal of any individual liberty and freedom and choice. Again, uh, Stuart Chase felt like uh, those choices and those freedoms would be uh, dictated uh, by, by the managerial class. He, he, uh, he wrote, he says, I am wondering, science and the scientific attitude as dictator of economic conditions, I like the sound of it better than stevedores telling me what industrial philosophy I must subscribe to or else submit my opinions to the glaciers of Alaska. Far better than Mount, uh, Mr. Raskob uh, telling me how many motor cars, airplanes, washing machines, and radios I must obligate myself for in the next five years. If the dream comes true, he writes, safe and successful passage on the third road is assured. Basically, he says, it is the road of science. Ah, yes. Once again, parallels to the Green New Deal, right, where, where it's science uh, that compels us to give up our freedom and our liberty in the name of central planning. Stuart Chase wrote, my contention is that the intelligent minority, whether or not it is destined to become a new economic class, uh, will now permit more change than at any time since the republic was founded. And that is a good beginning. It will swing to the left, he writes, and that is a good beginning. Uh, that is, uh, or he says it'll swing to the left, but only for a certain distance. That is enough, too. When we reach that signboard, he says, it will be time to explore the next section. The great difficulty at present is that the intelligent minority does not see the first section with sufficient clarity. Economic planning, he writes, is a reasonably muzzy phrase. It is the purpose of the remainder of this book, he says, to mark that road first with specific goals and then with certain major agencies to achieve them. Yeah. So, again, that managerial class, that intelligent minority, um, uh, Lenin would have called, Marx would have called it the vanguard of the revolution. But I guess Stuart Chase wanted to, you know, come up with a, a new phrase. That, that, that small section of society. Uh, is now going to, in Stuart Chase's mind, be the dominant class. And so the last third or so of uh, Chase's book, A New Deal, is, is all about the, uh, the specifics. Um, not all of which, it, it has to be noted, uh, came to pass in the Roosevelt administration. Uh, for instance, Chase talked about uh, the three major first steps that, uh, that would be undertaken in A New Deal. A managed currency... Uh, in which, you know, you, again, the, the, the government uh, controls the supply of money uh, to create inflation or deflation. I guess we sort of have that with the Federal Reserve now, right? Uh, drastic redistribution of the national income uh, through income and inheritance taxes and a huge program of public works. So we certainly got that in the New Deal. We, we, got, we, got, we got all three of those things, honestly. Uh, so he got his first steps, I suppose. You know, we talked about uh, a taxation, and this, again, I, I, the, the mindset of the left in the 1930s and the mindset of the left today is the same, is that, you know, look, there are all these rich people out there and they got money and we've got stuff we want to do with their money. So why shouldn't we take their money? Let's take their money. Right. He writes, uh, Stuart Chase does in 1932, the income tax is one of the divinest engines for rectifying the maldistribution of national income Ever invented. Yeah. He loves himself some income tax. In fact, he says uh, th th this part of our, our program, uh, you know, raising taxes, is inelegantly referred to in the halls of Congress as soaking the rich. Well, Stuart Chase writes, I am for soaking them, not because they're rich, 
Not because of their intolerable arrogance, not because of their frequently vulgar and demoralizing displays of conspicuous consumption, but because they save too much money and invest it in the wrong places. Man, if that just isn't the perfect summation of the collectivist attitude, of the, of the lefty attitude of what's yours is not yours. Oh, that money that you made, you saved too much of it. Oh, that money that is yours, you're not, you're not spending it where I would spend it. So you got to give it to me so that I can spend it the way that I would spend that money if it were mine. And oh yeah, by the way, it wasn't just the conspicuous consumption that really ticked off Stuart Chase. He said, it's their surplus funds which are forcing mechanical progress, quote-unquote, at an inordinate rate, piling up excess plant capacity, threatening overproduction, stimulating the gadget industries, creating technological unemployment, involving us in potential wars with silly foreign dumping and sillier foreign loans. They're wasting too much of the national income in these dubious enterprises, leaving far too little in purchasing power for a steady market of consumer goods. Think about where, okay, so from like the 1930s to, let's say, the end of the Cold War, where did we see more innovation? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's true uh, that the, you know, sometimes the, the uh, uh, quickness uh, of uh, technological innovation is kind of staggering, right? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes there are, there are times where I'm like, man, I wish we'd just kind of slow things down a little bit. But here's the thing. You can't just slow things down a little bit. Right? Under the Soviet Union, where was the big uh, innovation, particularly in the lives of uh, consumers? In, in uh, you know, communist China under Mao, where was the, uh, the big innovation? It's not there, right? I mean, the innovation and improvement in our quality of life came 99 out of 100 times from the West, from a free society, and then was adopted, or there was an attempt to adopt it, uh, in these communist or, or centrally planned societies. And it wasn't just, by the way, those individuals who had made their money couldn't spend their money where they wanted it to. They couldn't give it to their kids either. Uh, Stuart Chase said, I advocate both a percentage tax and a confiscation of principle above a given maximum. Uh, one fails to see how a son and heir cannot go to the devil as expeditiously on a million dollars as he can on a hundred million. Again, it's not your money. You didn't earn it. You didn't make it. And now you want to take it. It's not yours. And Chase, by the way, does note that um, this is going to cause some, some heartburn. Uh, you know, wealthy individuals uh, uh, are, are, in many cases, they're not required to be, but in many cases, they are philanthropists, right? They'll, they'll spend tens of millions, hundreds of millions, perhaps even billions of their dollars on uh, projects that they want to support voluntarily. And Chase says, forget that. He says, foundations will suffer, and that is also satisfactory to me. The good work which some of them do should be taken over and coordinated by the planning authority to which we shall presently describe. He gets into minimum wage laws as well. This was uh, before we had a national minimum wage, another thing that actually happened in the 1930s. Uh, and, and his idea of what would happen uh, to the economy when we introduced minimum wages is, again, it's fascinating. Because there's, I mean, there's no concern whatsoever for individuals, for small business owners. I mean, in fact, not only is there no concern, there is blatant uh, disrespect and, 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 and blatant antipathy, I guess, for those small business owners. Uh, he says, quote, uh, if the policy of minimum wage were extended to all classes of labor and concerns employing, say, 10 or more workers, uh, many quote-unquote marginal firms would be quietly put out of business, but they ought to be put out of business, he writes. Firms which cannot pay a living minimum wage are parasitic and uneconomic, bloodsuckers on healthy industry. They should be rooted out 
and their business and their labor forces transferred to establishments which are sufficiently well managed to meet the minimum standards. Here, he writes, is a large administrative task, to be sure, with plenty of trouble ahead of it, uh, but it ought to be done. It will help purchasing power and, above all, help human beings. A universal minimum wage means the substantial end of poverty. A permanent national holiday might well mark its advent. Yeah, all we got to do is set up a permanent minimum wage and, uh, look, no more poverty. We've had a minimum wage since the 1930s. I don't know what the minimum wage was when you started working. It was three thirty-five an hour for me. And, uh, you know, now they're talking about we need a $15 an hour minimum wage. And it is not going to eliminate poverty. It is just, again, another one of those utopian ideals. And if it means that small businesses go out of business, that's fine. Do you know why it's fine? Because large businesses are easier to control anyway. Central planning requires things to be as simple as possible. And if you have a bunch of small businesses, a bunch of individual businesses, just like you have a bunch of individual citizens, it becomes a very, very complex process. It's far easier to have just a, a few, a, as few big players in any industry as possible. It's much easier to manage that way. And those industries and in our individual lives, according to Stuart Chase, would be managed. Ultimately, look, you might have a president. He doesn't really talk about a president or Congress. He does talk about possibly needing a, a third political party to kind of set this all in motion. But, uh, but, but when, once this gets started, really the power is going to be vested in what, uh, what he called a national planning board. Uh, quote, a group which sees the whole picture and how each segment dovetails with the next. A group which has access to a steady flow of facts and statistics covering all significant aspects of the country's economic life. A group which knows the past, can give capable advices to the present, and sees into the future, especially the technological future. So basically, we need historians who are experts in current events and are also psychic. That's who's going to run the planning board. I mean, that's a really specific set of uh, job qualities. I think it's going to be hard to find. You know, again, I read something like this, and I'm like, okay, so, so nobody really picked up on the fact that in order for this national planning board to, uh, to, to work and to work well, um, you have to find human beings that don't actually exist to run it, right? I mean, is that not ultimately the problem that non-socialists have with socialism, Socialists say, well, we can plan our way to, to happiness. We can plan our way perhaps even to utopia. And the non-socialists say, no, you can't. Though the world is too complex, you're, you're never going to be able to manage it. Even today, I think with the help of algorithms and, you know, uh, and big data, that gives you more information. It does not give you more control. And if you really do want to set up some sort of, you know, top-heavy system like that, you will have to use the power of the state to eradicate, to eradicate and cut out completely any individual response that is critical of that regime. You cannot have central planning in a free society. You can't. Towards the end of a new deal, Stuart Chase says, the program of that third road, he says, is not an attempt to bolster up capitalism. It is frankly aimed at the destruction of capitalism, specifically in its most evil sense of ruthless expansion, the redistribution of national income, the sequestration of excess profits, and the control of new investment are all designed to that end. He says if these methods or others directed to the same goal cannot restrain the anarchic momentum of capitalism, there is nothing for it but wait for the precipice, striving to organize and advance the revolutionary forces which will then be liberated. Such, he says, is the communist's position, and from a certain philosophical point of view, there is much to be said for it. My position, Stuart Chase wrote, and probably that of the great majority of intelligent Americans, is to find a way to deflect the momentum before the precipice is reached. We do not care particularly about suffering the imbecilities and pains of the present system for even as much as a decade longer. And emphatically, we do not care to live through the inevitable horror of the final drop into the abyss. 
The Third Road, he says, attempts to dissolve capitalism with a minimum of governmental interference. <laughs> right, just a national planning board that's going to, you know, supervise all aspects of the economy. Just, yeah, minimum government interference. It uh, shifts new purchasing power into consumers' hands while restricting the number of things that they can actually purchase. Uh, shifts new investment from socially destructive fields to socially useful ones, particularly public works. This may not be enough, he says, but by the eternal it should be tried. And woe to the Supreme Court's antiquated rights of property, checks and balances, and democratic dogmas which stand in its path. We shall have plenty of exhilaration on the road if we have the will and courage to take it, even if it lacks the drama of red dictatorship and the imperial eagles of the black. So in other words, okay, look, yeah, it's not like, you know, uh, October Revolution, and it's not, sure, it's not fascism, but it is it is a remaking of American society, so you can be excited about that. As Stuart Chase uh, concludes his book, A New Deal, why should Russia have all the fun of remaking a world? So keep in mind that as crazy as a lot of this stuff was, um, some of it came to pass in, in, in one form or another. Uh, this has already gone way longer than I had anticipated it would, so I won't get into a huge history of the New Deal. But uh, first 100 days of Franklin Roosevelt's administration, I mean, he went big. They had all kinds of these huge sweeping uh, encroachments on individual liberty, a lot of which was challenged in court. Um, just because something sounds crazy, just because something is crazy, doesn't mean it won't come to pass. Uh, you look again at what uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a lot of the folks on the left who are pushing this Green New Deal are doing right now, and they're smart. They're smart about it. I know it's easy to say, ah, oh, they're dumb. They're it, it, No, they're, the way they're going about this is very, very savvy. You know, again, there's a crisis, and we can't let a crisis go to waste. But at the same time, it's not all doom and gloom. They offer a crusade. They offer a chance to become greater than yourself, to actually, you know, join a movement to save the planet. And that is actually going to be inspiring to a lot of people. We can uh, discuss the facts and figures. We could talk about why this doesn't work. But their emotional argument is going to resonate with a lot of people. And we've got to be prepared to reckon with that. All right. So with that. I will uh, bid you a fond adieu. We'll be doing another 40 Acres in a Fool podcast, Miss E and me, at some point uh, over the next couple of days. So stay tuned for that. We've got adventures about a, a brand new barn cat that suddenly appeared uh, at our place and much more. But until then, be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot, and we will talk to you soon. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. 